We pick things up in uh, verse 12. As we're making our way there, uh, just a reminder that on Sunday nights we go through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and we'll begin the book of Jonah this evening. Also enjoy the Lord's Supper, and so each of you are invited tonight, 6 o'clock for that. Jesus speaking and writing, and to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, these things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have those uh, who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. And thus you, shall, uh, you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some, of the, give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name, which, uh, written which no one knows except him who receives it. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that you are a speaking God and that you are a speaking Lord, and we want to be a hearing people today. And we pray that you would give us by your Holy Spirit the capacity to hear your voice through your word into our personal relationship uh, with you individually and then also into who and what we are as a church in this community. And we pray and we ask for this work of your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. With Pergamos, we come to the third of the seven letters that Jesus wrote to the seven churches. And the background, a little bit of background related to Pergamos is important to really understand what it is that Jesus is uh, driving at when he speaks to them. Pergamos was not a, uh, a port city like Ephesus and Smyrna. Uh, it was located about 20 miles inland from uh, Smyrna. Very, very prominent city, very, very wealthy city in the ancient world. But because it was inland, it lacked the ability to uh, raise wealth in the way that being a harbor town allowed you to do so in the ancient world and with so much trade making its way uh, in and out of your city. And so uh, that was kind of the requirement for becoming prominent in the ancient world. And Pergamus made herself wealthy, made herself famous uh, from other things. Pergamus was a university town a center for learning, a center for higher education. It had, uh, next to Alexandria, it had it, the largest library in the ancient world, uh, numbering, uh, the books numbering uh, 200,000, which is remarkable in any library, but certainly remarkable when you realize they constituted scrolls and uh, were all of them handwritten. It was also a center for pagan worship in the ancient world and all of the wealth that uh, comes with that. And uh, not only in the ancient world, but even today, to be a center for the worship of idols or the worship of gods has always been a massive moneymaker as people make their way, certainly in the Roman Empire, from all over the Roman Empire to worship the various gods that had temples there in the city of Pergamus. A list of her pagan temples kind of reads like a who's who of uh, the most famous Greek and Roman gods of the time. There were temples to Athena, who was the Greek goddess of wisdom in war, uh, a temple to Zeus, a, a marvel that is in the German Museum uh, today, uh, and uh, Zeus being the chief among the Greek gods in terms of its mythology. It was, he was the ruler over the heavens and the earth and uh, chief among all other gods. 
There was Dionysus, uh, the god of fertility, wine, and the arts, and the worship of this god. By the time uh, the Roman Empire embraced uh, him, uh, it was marked by great drunkenness and uh, uh, astonishing uh, sexual immorality. And then there was a shrine to, a temple to Asclepios. We'll mention him a little further in a moment. And then the city was known as well as Smyrna was for uh, emperor worship or Caesar worship. It was a medical center in, in the ancient world, and many of its medical practices centered upon Asclepios, who was the Greek god of medicine and physicians and healings. Uh, the physicians um, uh, there were considered priests of Asclepios there in, uh, in Pergamos. Significantly, the symbol of Asclepios is that of a serpent. And to this day, uh, for instance, the American Medical Association, the symbol is a serpent uh, winding its way up a staff. And, and it's all a reference back to this ancient mythology and uh, Asclepios as uh, the god of, of, of healing. People came from all over the world to be treated there in Pergamos and uh, in the worship of Asclepios, an example of the treatment, uh, uh, one example of it where sufferers would be uh, allowed to spend the night in the absolute darkness uh, of the, uh, uh, the temple, and uh, during the night, harmless snakes would be released onto the temple floor. They would proceed to slither and glide over the people who were lying on the floor, and the touch of the snake was considered to be the touch of Asclepios himself. And so, a classic case of the cure being worse than the disease uh, for most of us. And so, the Christians there in Pergamos were surrounded by idolatry. They were surrounded by tremendous spiritual immorality uh, or sexual immorality and also academic pride. And if any of that sounds familiar to you, um, it should. Now, in each of Jesus' letters to uh, the church of Smyrna and, and the church in Pergamos, he makes mention of Satan. Uh, repeatedly, and, uh, but he did so for entirely different reasons. And the last time we saw concerning uh, Smyrna, Satan attempted to destroy the church and the presence of the church there in Smyrna by means of uh, a crushing persecution. But in Pergamos, he does something different. He attempts initially to destroy the church through a uh, devastating persecution that resulted in the death of Antipas and others. But when he saw that that wouldn't work in terms of destroying the church, he simply resorted to a different tactic. And he endeavored now to uh, destroy the church by joining it. And he's very, very happy to live by the motto, if you can't beat them, uh, join them, and then do the best that you can to uh, control their, uh, the, the damage that they're doing to the kingdom of, of darkness. And so, if you can't beat them, join them. But it's with a twist, and, uh, and to join with the idea of destroying them. Not from the outside in, as he tries initially, but now from the inside out by joining the church. Jesus uh, mentioned and spoke uh, concerning this particular device of the devil in one of his parables known as the parable of the tares. And, uh, and the parable speaks of a man who goes out and he sows good seed uh, in his field and uh, he goes in at night and then enemies come in, in the eve uh, that night and they sow tares or darnels uh, among the wheat. And the tares were a plant in the ancient world that looked very much like wheat as it would initially sprout from the ground. Uh, but the longer the time went on, it would become clear that this is a tear, uh, this is an imposter, this is not a genuine uh, wheat. And when the master saw uh, uh, over time what it is that had happened here to his field, uh, he, he was asked whether he should tear out the, uh, 
tear, uh, the, take the tares out and, um, and uh, the servants asked the owner and the owner said to them uh, that don't do that, you'll tear the wheat out with the tares. And, uh, and, and they asked him, how is it that we planted wheat and now we have tares? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. And in Jesus' explanation of, of the parable later in the chapter, in Matthew chapter 13, he, ad- he identifies the tares as those who give the appearance of being Christians outwardly, but uh, who practice lawlessness privately. And they endeavor to uh, 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 draw genuine Christians into their lawless lifestyle as well. And as we'll see, this is exactly what was happening in Pergamos. It's important to realize uh, even today that wherever you have a legitimate work of the Holy Spirit going on in a church, that one of the devices of the enemy will be always a complete uh, uh, onslaught against it and an endeavor to uh, destroy it by means of some kind of of a a persecution. But if he is unsuccessful in, in that way, he will then... Uh, attempt to uh, blunt the influence of the church, blunt the, uh, the impact of the church, try to destroy it by planting false Christians among it, who will not attack the doctrinal foundation uh, of Christianity or of the church in particular. Uh, but this particular uh, kind of person is one who endeavors to convince genuine Christians within the church that as long as you believe the right things, as long as you hold to the right doctrines uh, in your head, it doesn't matter what kind of life you live uh, uh, actually and daily. Because the devil recognizes uh, of a church and of an individual Christian that he cannot, if he can't destroy their faith, then he'll be content to do the very uh, next best thing, and that is to destroy uh, their Christian witness and their Christian influence uh, in the world. You notice that Jesus addresses the messenger, as he does in each of the letters in verse 12, because the messenger or the leader of the church is ultimately responsible for the condition uh, of the church. He begins also in verse 12, as he, uh, a characteristic of each of his letters, he begins his letter with a self-description. And again, it's not some kind of willy-nilly self-description that he comes up with. He describes himself in some way from uh, pertaining to the vision or the, uh, not the vision, but John seeing Jesus in his eternal glory in chapter 1, and God, Jesus is reminding this church of something that they have lost sight of uh, about him and his character that they need to be reminded of. And he comes to this church as he who has a sharp two-edged sword. And again, coming from chapter 1, verse 16, where Jesus is described as he had uh, in his hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a two-edged sword. And so this speaks of the word uh, of Jesus. It, it is likened to a, a sword. Uh, the Greek word that is used for sword here is not the smaller sword that the Roman soldiers would use in kind of hand-to-hand close combat, but it's used of a very, very large uh, long sword that when a Roman soldier would wield it uh, and swinging it would just bring devastating uh, destruction to, uh, to an enemy. And uh, this sword symbolizes and represents the judging power of the Word of God. In other words, Jesus reminds them that His Word, uh, that the Word of God, that the Bible, and it, and it alone, is to be the standard for all that we, uh, all, all doctrine in the church, all practice within the church, also within a Christian's life, it is to be the standard for what we believe, but also the life that we live. And, uh, and they are to be ruthless 
with any and all false doctrine that had crept into the church, whether having to do with what we believe or what the Bible says about the life that we're to live as Christians. And so his word, Jesus is saying, in essence, is not to be replaced by false doctrine. It's not to be replaced by man's wisdom or man's ideas or man's traditions. God's word is always to make mincemeat of those things. They are never to challenge his word in a Christian's life or in a Christian uh, church. Additionally, it communicates the serious judgment that will come upon uh, anyone who endeavors to poison a church in the way uh, that these were endeavoring to poison the church there uh, in Pergamos. Jesus declares in verse 13, again characteristic of all of the letters, he says, I know your works. And, uh, and as he does, of course, uh, every church. And then he proceeded to give them a description, an assessment. How invaluable uh, uh, would that be to a church for him to say, I know your works. It's all uh, naked and open before uh, my eyes. And uh, here is what I'm seeing. And so he begins as he usually does with a commendation or an encouragement to the church. He said, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. So you stop and you think about that for a moment. Uh, I don't think anybody wants to particularly live in a city where Satan's throne dwells. Uh, I mean, Satan has varying uh, authority and varying influence upon probably every city uh, within, within the world. But at this time in, in human history, Pergamos was where Satan's throne was and where his rule was uh, uh, the strongest. And probably due to the sheer concentration uh, of the uh, idol temples that were located there, the idol worship that was going on there, uh, the debauched uh, behavior that was happening, uh, in addition to being a center for uh, emperor worship. And of course, Jesus uh, saw the concentration of demonic influence and and uh, presence that existed in the city, and he acknowledged. I mean, it would be very interesting to me to have this kind of an assessment made of our city, uh, of any city in the world. And uh, we know how we see it, but uh, how does he see it in terms of uh, a demonic influence and what devices are being used to attempt to blunt the influence of the church and destroy the church within that, that community. And so Jesus acknowledges to them that he recognizes that Pergamos was not an easy place for a Christian to live and to live for uh, Christ and, uh, and that he understood exactly what they were in the middle of in terms of the darkness, in terms of uh, the demonic uh, oppression and warfare. can imagine the, the oppression that would be demonic oppression in a city where Satan's throne uh, is. And yet, in the midst of this kind of demonic environment, Jesus declared, you notice, you hold fast my name, you did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr. So they held fast to Jesus' name. They refused to engage in the emperor worship. They refused to offer a pinch of incense uh, there on the altar annually and declare Caesar to be Lord. Jesus said also that they did not deny his faith. That is, they did not deny the foundational teachings uh, of Christianity. And um, uh, John Walvoord, by anything uh, by John Walvoord, he's now in heaven uh, on uh, end times of the book of Revelation. 
uh, and, but uh, he, he speaks of it here as uh, the body of Christian truth which accompanies faith in Christ. So they held on to the deity of Christ. They held on to the fact that He was the Son of God, that He was, Jesus is the Messiah, that He is the Savior of the world, that they held on to the truth of His virgin birth, that His death upon the cross was the full and satisfying payment for mankind's sin, that He is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father but by Him. Also uh, to uh, the truth of His resurrection, salvation by grace through faith. All of these things, they didn't budge on, on any of, uh, of those things. And they, were, uh, and, uh, they did so while even suffering uh, persecution, life-threatening persecution. And when one of their fellow Christians in the church, a man by the name of Antipas, uh, was martyred, as a result of refusing to compromise, and this is the great sin that's being introduced into the church of Pergamos, he refused to compromise and was martyred as a result of his faithfulness to Jesus. We don't know the details that the means by which he died. Tertullian, a early church father, uh, declared that he met his death by being placed inside of a great iron um, uh, uh, oven that was uh, 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 that would surround him that was in the form of uh, of a, a, a bull and then roasted alive within uh, uh, within that and and uh, uh, but apparently someone demanded something of Antipas that constituted a compromise of his faith. He refused to do it even in the face of that kind of, of a death. And Jesus brings him up uh, again as an example of not compromising because this is the great danger in the church of Pergamos. It is interesting concerning Antipas to, that, to realize that when Jesus refers to him as a martyr, he uses a different word than typically we might think. He uses a Greek word that means witness. Now, when we talk about a martyr in our, uh, our use of language, it speaks of someone who has died for something that they believe in. Uh, that's not strictly what this word uh, uh, means. Technically, it means uh, witness. And in a technical sense, what Jesus is communicating here is that death, it is not death that makes us a martyr as Christians. It, it, death merely uh, reveals us to, to be a martyr. In other words, if we never die for our faith at the hands uh, of the enemies of Christ and Christianity in the way that Antipas was, it is still possible to live a martyr's death on a daily uh, basis. And, uh, and, uh, and with that recognition that if it came to death, uh, that then I would make that stand in that situation as well by the grace of God. Now, Jesus then in verses 14 and 15, he then moves on to his exhortation and his uh, correction. And he lets them know that he has several things, a few things, verse 14, against them. And the first thing that he had against them, he says, is because you have those who hold the doctrine of Balaam. The church had been infiltrated by some number of people who held this doctrine called uh, the doctrine of Balaam. And the biblical account, again, related to the book of Revelation, you have to go back to the Old Testament so often to understand what it is that Jesus is talking about here. And the biblical account of Balaam is found in the Old Testament book of Numbers, chapters 22 uh, through 24. He is one of the biggest villains in, in all of, uh, of the Bible. And uh, we looked at him even recently as we went through Jude, but we'll do the same uh, here in this context as well. As the children of Israel had left uh, the, uh, the captivity in Egypt, and after a 
40-year delay because of their lack of faith and unbelief toward God in the wilderness, they now at that point began to, in earnest, make their way to the promised land, the land that God had promised to them. And as they made their way toward the promised land, they came upon the border of an uh, ancient uh, country that was called Moab. And Moab uh, abutted the, the promised land, abutted the, the land of, uh, of Israel. And uh, Moab is the home of the Moabites. And the king of Moab at the time, a man by the name of Balak, was concerned that the children of Israel making their way to the promised land would also militarily attack them and overthrow their, uh, overthrow their, their country. And so he was alarmed by this. And... Uh, and he uh, summoned a prophet by the name of Balaam to come to Moab and pronounce a curse over the children of Israel as they were encamped at the border of Moab. Remember, the children of Israel number somewhere, in a, uh, uh, somewhere around three million people at this particular point in time. It's a big camping trip. And uh, you're always eager to get home. <laughs> and they're eager to get into the, the promised land. And so Balaam came. And, under the, uh, and came under the motivation of greed. He had been offered great wealth if he would come and pronounce a curse upon the children of Israel. And, and uh, so, uh, so he came. And each time he opened his mouth, uh, intent, upon, uh, Balak, uh, intent upon him uh, pronouncing a, a curse, God simply filled his mouth and his heart with a great blessing. And three times he pronounces uh, these beautiful blessings over this encamped children of Israel that are out in front of him. And the fourth prophecy, a fourth one that he gives is a beautiful, beautiful prophecy concerning the Messiah who is to come uh, out of their ranks, speaking of Jesus uh, him, himself. And so these prophecies really among the most beautiful prophecies about Israel in all of uh, of the Bible, and uh, and so uh, so these blessings came out of his mouth rather rather than cursings. Well, you think well, so far so good related to Balaam. What in the world made him a villain uh, in uh, in the Bible? Well, when we put together the entire biblical account concerning Balaam. And uh, from the book of Numbers, from Second Peter, from Jude, and then also Jesus' words here, we find the answer. Because Balaam did not curse the children of Israel as Balak had demanded that he uh, would do so, but instead he blessed uh, Israel four times. Balak told him, you go home and I'm not going to uh, pay you. And instead of going home, uh, Balak, out of his greed for money, he, uh, Balaam, he proceeded to reveal to Balak the way that Israel could be cursed and defeated. And his counsel essentially to Balak was, there's only one way to blunt or to stop the forward progress of God's people. You can never curse them. You can never defeat these people from without. Their God is greater than all of that, and He will take every curse, Balak, that you put against these people, and He will turn it into a blessing, as you have now seen uh, four times. The only way you can uh, defeat them is if you get them to bring defeat upon themselves. The only way that you can curse them is if you can get them to bring a curse upon themselves. Only they can bring defeat upon themselves. And from Numbers chapter 25, he uh, told Balak, this is how you do it. Their God is a, a holy uh, God. He's a jealous God. He will not share the affections of His people with other gods. And so take your Moabitess uh, women, young women, make them available sexually uh, to the children of Israel, 
go into the tents, and then when they're all worked up sexually, bring out, have the Moabitess women and the, uh, the Ammonite women bring out uh, all of their idols so that the men will then engage in I- idolatry to continue the sexual activity. And their God, who is a jealous God, will be forced to respond with a, a righteous anger against them. And Balak did exactly as Balaam told him to do, and uh, involving uh, Midianite women, involving Moabitess women, it was successful, successful, and 24,000 men among the children of Israel died in the resulting plague. Balaam would later be killed when God sent Israel to war against the Midianites for their uh, uh, Moabites and, and, and Midianites for their role in all of this because he didn't return home, but he continued to live among the Midianites. Now, Balaam is referred to and condemned three times in the New Testament. And the apostle Peter and Jude, they condemned him for his greed. They condemned him for the sin of Balaam. And the sin of Balaam is covetousness. Here Jesus does not condemn uh, Balaam for the sin of Balaam. He condemns, uh, uh, what Jesus condemns is the doctrine of Balaam. And so we ask ourselves, what is the doctrine? What was the teaching of Balaam? And uh, he taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, told them how to get them to stumble in uh, their walk with God. And how did he get the ch- uh, tell Balak how to get them to stumble in, uh, in their relationship with God? By, number one, introducing idolatry, into the lives of God's people, and then number two, introducing sexual immorality into the lives of God's people. And there were people in the church at Pergamos claiming to be Christians who were exerting that very same influence upon those who were Christians within the church uh, in uh, the influence of Balaam in the church of Pergamos, holding to the idea that it's okay for a Christian to practice idolatry and sexual immorality. And of course, unfortunately, the doctrine of Balaam is alive and well, uh, uh, even yet today. Again, concerning these people that Jesus is condemning here, These are people who adhere to all of the foundational truths of Christianity. They don't deny that. What they deny is the doctrine of holiness. They deny the doctrine of sanctification, the doctrine of the importance of godly living in the life of a Christian. And the idea that as long as you believe the right things, as long as you have the right doctrines in your head, it doesn't matter what kind of life you live in practice. And here, Jesus condemns them for accommodating themselves uh, in the church here uh, to the prevailing idolatrous and sexually immoral culture around them. And of course, we live in a very idolatrous culture and a very sexually immoral uh, culture. And so he condemns the same thing concerning anyone that would uh, declare themselves to be a Christian and to hold this view uh, of Christianity and then to try and influence others in the body of Christ that these things don't really matter to God. And Jesus stands up and says, oh yes, they do. And, uh, and he condemns, the, uh, condemns it here. The gap that exists, and I say this every so often because it's so applicable here. The gap that exists between what we know and what we believe biblically and the life that we live practically. And there will always be a gap because we won't be perfect until we get into heaven. 
But that gap between what we believe and know to be true biblically and the life that we actually live, that gap should always be narrowing in our lives as Christians. It should never, ever be widening. Uh, When it begins to widen now, that's a danger sign in, in any Christian's life. It's a danger of the fact that I have now somehow come under the influence of the doctrine of Balaam. And the problem with the doctrine of Balaam is Uh, that doctrine uh, will readily receive it without anybody telling us that. I mean, we got a doctrine of Balaam within our own heart. We can convince ourselves that there's nothing wrong uh, uh, with that. And so uh, the danger of that, and in in the light of Jesus' sober warning here, we certainly would want to Uh, uh, check our own hearts in this regard. The second thing that he had against them in verse 15 was that there were those within the church who held the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And Jesus said very significantly that he hates this doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Now, some uh, Bible teachers and scholars uh, think that the Nicolaitans refers to uh, uh, this, uh, this doctrine was uh, uh, named after a, a man in, in the ancient world at this time who was influencing Christianity in the same way towards licentiousness and, and again communicating the same thing. Believe one thing, live something else, and it doesn't matter uh, to God. And that may very well uh, be true. Uh, We don't exactly know what the deeds of the Nicolaitans were, but I'm inclined to believe that um, because it's included here, that there's supposed to be something about this, if Jesus hates this, that it wouldn't be something that would be lost to us in history, but that it would be timeless in terms of understanding what he's condemning uh, here. And, uh, And... Uh, I think uh, uh, the meaning is in it, and I think is a qualifying statement, by the way. Uh, The word Nicolaitans is made up of two individual Greek words, nikeo, which means to conquer, and then laos, which means the people. We get our word laity, English word laity, out of that Greek word laos. And it appears to be the establishing of a religious system in which the clergy rule over the laity, where the leaders of the church become mediators and compete with Jesus in that position. They become mediators between Christians and, uh, and uh, God. We certainly see this kind of thing in Roman Catholicism where uh, their priests are openly referred to as mediators between God and people. We see the same kind of thing uh, practiced at times in uh, Protestantism, where the old shepherding doctrine, where you couldn't make any decision uh, without running that decision through your leader or through your pastor. What pastor would ever want that kind of aggravation? We need to buy a new refrigerator. Do we get in the Manor or Westinghouse? Just a second. I'll go online and see what Consumer Reports is saying. Who needs, who in their right mind would, but you get these people that just, they want that kind of position. They want that kind of, of authority. And then you can always see uh, prevalent in any kind of, even with what claims to be Christian, where leaders, as well as uh, all Christians, called to be servants of one another, where you look at it and say, there is an undue uh, authority and, and demanding influence on the part of this leader uh, of people within that congregation that is competing with Jesus in that role. And so I'm inclined to think that Jesus is condemning uh, that that kind of of thing. And he called in verse 16 on those that were compromising in this way uh, within the church individually and uh, and, uh, in the church as a whole uh, to repent of this. Uh, uh, They were to stop the influence of these people 
uh, in the church. And if they failed uh, to repent and to remove the leaven, then Jesus promised to judge them uh, himself. In other words, to the church, to the leaders, if you will not defend my church, then I will, I will defend uh, my church. And then he moves on, as, again, as is characteristic in the letter in verse 17, an exhortation to have an ear uh, and hear what it is that he's just told them and recognizing that uh, tendency that we can have to listen to what he's heard and never allow it to penetrate our hearts, to never allow it to examine our hearts, to never allow uh, it, it uh, for my life to be perhaps even massively marked uh, by compromise of the Word of God and to be able to listen to what Jesus has here and, uh, and leave untouched by it altogether and uh, go get an ice cream somewhere and uh, be completely unmoved. And so uh, he's, he tells them and he tells us, take this uh, seriously. Jesus isn't just talking to talk, uh, but to be listened to. He then lays out his promise to overcomers, those who overcome this uh, temptation and uh, problem within the church of Pergamos in verse 17. And so uh, those, uh, the overcomer would be someone who is uh, uncompromising in their doctrine, uncompromising in their uh, walk with God in the face of all of the, the persecution and, uh, uh, that, uh, that we may face. And he said to the overcomer, he would give some hidden manna to eat. You might remember again in the Old Testament that God supplied the children of Israel with a physical manna in order to feed them physically during the 40 years of their wandering in the wilderness. And, uh, and all of it is a type or a picture of the spiritual manna that God has provided to us now for our spiritual hunger in Jesus Christ Himself as we're in our pilgrimage making our way uh, uh, home to heaven. Jesus spoke of it in uh, John chapter 6, verse 32. Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. And he who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. And so Jesus is the one who satisfies us spiritually. And the idea as he speaks about this is if you think you can, you, there's no, if, if a Christian thinks I, uh, I uh, can run to all of the various idols and what they represent and worship them in the world or run to sexual immorality or whatever else kind of sin is going on in the culture and ever be satisfied in that worship and in that practice, uh, that we will never be satisfied, that He is the manna that brings spiritual satisfaction into our lives, and He is the only one uh, who does that. He says the overcomer, to the overcomer, He would give a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, that no one knows except him who receives it. Now, there are a lot of different ideas. People speculate about what this white stone is because a white stone was used a lot of different ways in the Roman world. And, uh, and so a white stone was oftentimes given to uh, the victor in an athletic contest. I think one of the best explanations, and, and it is my view related to this, is that uh, when someone would be put on trial and uh, they would be judged by a panel of judges and then after the case was laid, a, a container would then be passed by each of the judges and uh, they would put one of two stones that they held into uh, that container, a white stone uh, that spoke of the acquittal of, of the person accused 
or a black stone that spoke of their uh, their condemnation. And so they would be acquitted or condemned based upon the majority color of the stones that ended up in in the, the, the receptacle. In other words, Jesus is saying those who make themselves innocent of this charge of the doctrine of the Nicolaitans and the doctrine of, of Balaam, that they would make themselves innocent of, uh, of these charges. They'll be given a white stone. That is, they'll be acquitted by God of this wrongdoing. Notice additionally, and this is very, very fascinating. Uh, you may say, well, I'm, not, uh, I'm done being fascinated. Yeah, you'll, be, you'll be fascinated. I'm very near uh, the end. But Jesus tells us that the person who receives that white stone from him uh, will discover a name that's written uh, upon that stone that only those who receive the stone uh, will know. Now, some commentators and and scholars believe that this name is the name uh, of God. But it it is probably best to understand it as a Christian's new name that will be given to us by the Lord Himself. You notice at the end of verse 17, which no one knows except Him who uh, uh, receives it. And so this new name uh, will be given to the overcomer. And, uh, And a new name that speaks, this new name speaks of a, the new character that has been developed in our lives uh, as a result of our relationship with Christ, a character that we now possess, godly character that we know we would never experience, that we would never know uh, in and of, uh, of ourselves, uh, uh, and some kind of a name that speaks to that character that He's developed in our life that blesses Him. And of course, the Bible is full of examples where uh, God renames people, gives them new names. Abram was renamed Abraham. He went from Abram, exalted father, to Abraham, the father of a multitude. Sarah was renamed, Sarai was renamed Sarah. God changed her name to princess. Jacob was renamed Israel. He went from heel catcher to be governed or ruled by God. Simon was renamed Peter. Uh, Simon meaning uh, listening or hearing, uh, or uh, he has heard speaking of God's voice, and he was renamed Peter, uh, which means rock. Saul of Tarsus became the apostle Paul, and Saul was his Hebrew name, Paul uh, being the Latin version of the same name, speaking of Paul's Uh, future ministry among the Gentiles in the Roman world. And so it'll be very, very interesting one day to receive that new name and to realize that how it is that Christ sees our lives and uh, what it is that is about our lives that uh, that blesses Him predominantly as He sees uh, the work that uh, we've allowed Him to to do in our lives and to become characteristic of a certain name, and one day we'll find out what that name is. And so we ask ourselves, as we want to through the entire book of Revelation, since this book is a revelation of Jesus Christ, what do we learn about uh, Jesus here in his letter to the church of Pergamos? And I think supremely it is how serious he views compromise in our lives. Not just in terms of doctrine, uh, but compromise in the life that we live how seriously he views any deliberate gap that exists between what we know to be true and what the Bible teaches and the life that we uh, actually uh, live as Christians. And that's a good thing to take a, a walk with in any of our lives in the light of what Jesus speaks to this church. And, and because it, 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 it is a great temptation for every church, and is a great temptation to us, each and every one of us as Christians, 
for compromise to overtime begin to embed itself in our lives and that gap to begin increasing rather than narrowing as we make our way toward heaven. And so a sobering letter, an important letter that speaks against something that we can fall asleep to within a culture in the same way that Pergamos could fall asleep to it in the ungodliness of that culture. And so Jesus gives us a good word, a good wake-up call related to this. I think that sometimes we look at Jesus and um, uh, we think of him, you know, in terms of his instruction to us as Christians, almost solely in, in the realm of individually and from the Gospels. And so we see all of the red letters in the four Gospels, and, and we see that uh, Jesus' instruction there is uh, mostly uh, evangelistic. He's come to save the world, and he's come with this message to repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. And then uh, Paul and others are used by the Holy Spirit to then uh, bring together the, the epistles of the New Testament that speak to the individual Christian life. Once we become Christians, speak to our, uh, the uh, what a church is supposed to be and what it's supposed to look like. And there can be sometimes a, a, a line between the two uh, that Jesus really didn't uh, give any kind of details about what's important to him in a church or what's important in a, in a Christian life. And here we see in these seven letters that it is very, very important to him. And he has a lot to say about it. And here as he speaks to this church in, in uh, Pergamos, he, uh, what he thinks of when he looks at that particular church, what he thinks of in terms of, of Christian living is, is the danger of, of compromise. And so, again, a good word and one that is something that encourages us as we make a stand against these things that are trying to overtake our lives and overtake this church and any church, and then also uh, exhort us if we are deliberately losing that battle. And to lose that battle is always to do so deliberately. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. <clears throat> Jesus, thank you for this instruction and how timeless it is. And we recognize as we go through this letter this morning how uh, we are in Pergamos, we are in Ephesus, we are in all of these letters to some degree or another. And we embrace your message here, your encouragement, uh, your exhortation as well. And I pray for myself and we pray for one another that you'd really give us an ear to hear. <clears throat> concerning this area of compromise where we see it so dominant, not only within the culture, but a strong influence even within uh, your church. And so we embrace your sobriety on the issue. We choose, Lord, uh, your way, and not only your doctrine, but also the life that you call us uh, to live. Give us the power to do so. By your Holy Spirit, we pray, and we ask it in your name. In Jesus' name, amen.